0: For the week of June 27th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 547, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich.
1: And in my conservatorship, I'm Michael Giltz. Help! I'm trapped and I can't get out, apparently. I have no idea. What, oh, you're talking about Britney Spears, aren't you? you but... But yes, you're not... But you're not in a conservatorship. And, for, I am not, and I'm not making fun of it. This is a bizarre... You know, we've got a movie about you know the legal guardians and people taking over your estate and the control they have and how suddenly it's very hard to get out of it, and we're looking at one of the most popular, famous people in the world facing a nightmarish situation. <laughs> you, know? you can't have children, you can't date this person, you can't leave your room. It's crazy, except when we want you to tour and perform. It's bizarre and confusing and a little scary, so... You know that's certainly one of the big news stories of the week. But since we're not uh, lawyers and experts on conservatorships, we don't have much to add except, well, we look forward to watching the yet another documentary and feature film and miniseries and books and memoirs that will be written about this for years to come.
0: About Britney Spears, you mean? Exactly. Yeah, I would agree. I think there will probably be uh, all of those things. To be honest, absolutely. But we can talk about what's going to be on
1: the show this week, can't we?
0: Yes. Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got more box office. I know we keep talking about box office. Yeah, we keep talking about it week after week, and that's because it's actually coming back. The latest Fast and Furious film opened in North America, and the news was good all around. Every new market that film opened in was a huge success. South Korea is also doing well after weeks of coasting on Hollywood releases. Now a new Korean thriller opened at the local box office and hit top speed right away. See what I did there? Because I related the Korean Uh, film back to F9. Yeah. Okay. Well, on Inside Baseball, we'll talk about one of my favorite subjects, the boss. And I'm not talking about the man, although I guess I am talking about the man, but not the man, I'm talking about the boss, Bruce Springsteen. His one-man show reopened on Broadway, but we have no idea if anyone other than critics went to see him perform. And now how can that be? You might, you may be asking that question. Don't worry, we'll explain. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines and how we got some phone calls. That's right, we got phone calls, yeah. people, actual voicemails to listen to, okay? You should be calling us. 888-567-SAND that's 888-567-7263 you can also write to us dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address that's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com you can also follow us on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox or like us on Facebook facebook facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page Uh, by the way unfortunately one of those calls by the way, is spam, but we'll play the (laughs) other one as well. It comes from a, a higher authority, let's just put it that way. First, though, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office, although he may be a little flummoxed since I threw in all of that contact information without warning him at all, much as he often throws to me to give you that contact information without ever warning me at all. So the roles
1: are reversed this week. Michael I please not expecting that. I'm also not expecting the fact that the comscore website has not been updated with the latest box office figures. Usually by Sunday, you can get that there. Uh it's Monday and we're still looking at the last week's box office at comscore. It's a great website to go to if you can. Sperling, however, forward me the latest box office information so we have the latest figures. And the number one movie around the world is F9 the latest in the Fast and Furious franchise. It made $113 million worldwide. It grossed about $70 million in North America. It opened up in about 22, 23 countries, and it was number one in every new country that it opened up in, and it's number one on our charts. It's at $400 million worldwide. Now, this movie has a 30-day window, so the clock is ticking in North America. It made $70 million. We'll be looking forward to 30 days from now, which will be... uh, july 27th to see if universal rushes it onto video on demand or whether they feel like there's more money to be made at the box office and they want to wait another week or two that's going to be an interesting day
0: can i give you a a hint there's going to be more money to be made at the box office after 30 days now after 45 after 50 60 70 you're you're definitely playing
1: out at that point normally i would agree with you but It all depends on the movie and, of course, how much people are going back to the box office right now. There may not be the repeat business there was in the old days because people aren't going as often. They might go to the movies once, but maybe they don't go two or three times to see a flick. Maybe they're likely and ready to go to the movies, but they say, you know what? This week, I think I'll just stay at home and watch it on HBO Max. Not that movie, but another movie. So I don't think the rules are back in force like they would be normally. So I'm not so sure that F9 won't be played out in North America. Within 30 days, we'll have to see. And number two is A Quiet Place Part 2. That made another $27 million worldwide. That's at $250 million in counting. That one does have the 45-day window before it can appear on Paramount+. Plus, and that's the window we like. And number three is Cruella. That made another $24 million. That's at $185 million worldwide. Then there's The Conjuring. The Devil Made Me Do It or The Conjuring 3. That made $18 million, and it's at $160 million worldwide. Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, is running away with that. No, it made some more money, $17 million, and it did pass the $100 million mark. The Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife, I'm not sure if that will get there, but it made $15 million this week, and it's at $40 million worldwide. Then we have a hit, a Taiwanese comic drama, it's called Man in Love. I think it opened up in China. This week it made $12 million. It's at $42 million and counting. Some better news for In the Heights. It fell hard last week from its opening weekend, uh, but this week it held well. It made another $9 million this week, the same amount it made last week. It's now at $30 million. Are people seeing it at the box office or are they watching it on HBO Max? Luca doesn't have that option. If it's available on Disney+, Plus. You're, they're not showing it in the theater. So worldwide, it's only in a few territories right now. It made $7 million this week. It's at $12 million total. Then there's On Your Mark, that Chinese weepy about a blind penis who wants to be a runner. <laughs> it made $6 million, and it's at $14 million accounting. And then good news in Korea. A new Korean film opened up. For the last few weeks, they've been coasting on Hollywood releases. But finally, a big local release is out. It's called Hard Hit. It's sort of a spin on speed about a businessman who's driving with his daughter in his car when he gets a, a phone call that says, there's a bomb in your car, give us the money or we'll blow it up. Excitement prevails after that, and it opened up to $5 million. Now, it sounds like a spin on speed, but in fact, it's a remake of a Spanish film called Retribution. Then there's Between Us, a film I could not figure out what it was about. I tried, I failed. Sperling just gave you the contact info. If you know, let us know. Then there's Hello World, the Japanese animated film. That opened up in China after a run in Japan. It made $4 million this week, as did Never Stop, Spirit Untamed, the uh, Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron movie uh, franchise movie. Uh, Those all made $4 million, and that's where the box office is. We were getting there, talking to you about where movies are at the box office, when they're going to be available on streaming. Maybe they'll be available on premium video on demand. Maybe they already are. It's confusing, isn't it? And Variety had a story about that saying, people are confused. Not even just when movies are in the box office and at home. They just don't know in general where to go. Someone says, oh, I saw a great movie. And they're like, oh, yeah, I think it was on Netflix, which is their first instinct to say, because so much is on Netflix. But in fact, it turns out it was on Hulu or Paramount Plus. Or What you're you're saying is, Netflix
0: is the new Kleenex. By the way, title. That's going to be the title of
1: this episode. Netflix is the new Kleenex. That's right. People need a way to figure out where stuff is at. You don't just open up your local paper anymore to see a movie's in the theater. That's all sort of content and they don't know where to go. TV Guide doesn't cut it, right? We use justwatch.com, which is pretty useful for current stuff. If it's a new thing and it's playing now, they're pretty good about being able to tell you what services it's available at. Uh, they and if it's only in theaters, it just says, oh, sorry, we don't know what's going on. It's not available yet in the home. But just watch can at least give you a sense of where stuff is if it's available in the home in one form or another. But the big marketing problem, isn't it, Sperling?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, the big marketing problem is the fact that there's just so much content online and Mm -hmm. breaking through and kind of rising above the fray and, 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 you know, that whole cream rising to the top thing. Okay, where's the top? Which top am I supposed to be looking at? Am I supposed to be looking at the top of Hulu or am I supposed to be looking at the top of Netflix? Where am I supposed to be looking?
1: But Disney wants you to know if they've got a new big movie playing on Disney Plus exclusively, and they don't want you confused as about to where to go. However, so, you know, like, oh, if you go there and you find out, oh, no, it's Cruella and I got to pay $30, you might get annoyed. Or maybe you want to see it in the theater like in Avengers movies, but someone else says, well, why isn't it on Disney Plus? So this is going to be a hard, you know, not to unravel, I think. I'm not quite he- sure what the solution is. You know, you you mentioned a hard hit being
0: somewhat like, um, speed, speed. Yeah. Well, here in Los Angeles, they're rebuilding the airport and they're building a train to the airport. And they've been doing this now for many years, uh, for about two years. But during the pandemic, they got all of the portions up, uh, of this bridge throughout this airport it's huge airport and Mm -hmm. but they didn't get the pieces up but that go over major roads so you see like these like sections of the of of the train tracks these uh, like but then they just end where the road when it has to go over road it looks like and my daughters were like oh it's like that movie where the girl is driving the bus
1: and (laughs) because like you know they had unfinished road work that they ended up on yeah
0: Right and so and by the way uh, yeah I'm surprised that movie hasn't been remade but Taken there's been like nine Taken movies right I mean I'm kidding of course but you mean uh Liam Neeson flicks action flicks yeah action flicks but then you sent me a a a uh, trailer to a Nicolas Cage movie that uh and, and the I had seen the trailer but the comments underneath there was one that read uh it's about Nicholas Cage. He has a truffle pig. He lives in the woods, and somebody steals his truffle truffle pig. Okay. And one of the comments, one of the comments underneath said, uh, Liam Neeson, give me back my
1: daughter. Uh, Keanu Reeves, give me back my dog. Nicholas Cage, give me back my pig. <laughs> Well, it's funny what you said about speed, and I'm sure they filmed that probably on, you know, unfinished construction that they found. And the same was done for hard hit. They took advantage of the unfortunate COVID pandemic and said they shot in the city during the pandemic because there were no cars on the road. It made it a lot easier to block off cars and do those action scenes without having to, you know, stop traffic and have a lot of rigmarole and a lot of people get angry because they couldn't get to work. No one was driving to work. Well, yeah, and so they-, they did. You're you're right. It was uh, the 105
0: freeway was being built at the time, and so they used that for speed uh, because it was undone. Uh, it wasn't complete. It was unfinished. Um, you know, I saw another, speaking of Taken, I saw a film at the recent Tribeca Film Festival. Of course, I didn't go. It was o- o- uh, over— you, s- you streamed it? I streamed it. It was called— Catch the Fair One. And it it starred, uh, I'm trying to remember the the person that it stars, but I didn't realize this at the time, but she's an actual boxer who is playing uh, a, and she's a Native American boxer, uh, and and she plays a Native American boxer in the film, uh, but it was very much like a a taken in in a way. It was, you know, she's Mm -hmm. looking for her sister who's been kidnapped. Uh, Callie Reese, Callie Reese plays the fearsome protagonist, and it was, you know, definitely darren aronofsky produced it and you can see you know it's of that caliber it really is that that it's one of the better movies of the year oh i meant uh in terms of well no because its ending doesn't really hold up but uh it was definitely a good a good film the tension was uh it was a very tense film it was a very uh
1: Yeah. Well, you covered Tribeca and you can do that digitally and that's great. And hopefully they'll keep that option going in years to come. Toronto is going to do that. They're allowing people to cover what they can digitally. Now they're showing Dune in Toronto. They will not be making that available to digital journalists. That's okay. We understand that. But for a lot of the titles, the movies you want to cover there's no reason not to make it available digitally. It's going to be safe. You can make sure it doesn't get ripped off and journalists will be able to provide more coverage for your movies. You did just that this week at AFI Docs. That's the biggest documentary film festival in the world, isn't it?
0: It's one of them, yeah. It's uh, certainly here in the United States. It's it's definitely one of the bigger ones. Where is it, uh, that where might is might it be held? Cute. It is held in, I believe, Silver Spring, Maryland, even though AFI, it's kind of like oh. on both coasts.
1: So you've never uh, been there, right? I've never You've been never been gone to AFI to Spring, Doc. Silver Springs, Maryland, right? But this year you were able to cover it, weren't you?
0: Actually, I was born in Silver Springs, Maryland, ironically. But uh, I've
1: never been there for the festival. So you, have, you have been there, <laughs> yes. Unbeknownst to me, uh, you were born not born there willingly. The AFI Doc was born there. Well, nobody's born willingly, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, well, it's, <laughs> but anyway, you attended AFI docs. How was it run? Were you happy with it? Did it run smoothly? Was it cool? Were you able to access everything you wanted in a way you wanted? Is it very yes. friendly, user friendly now?
0: Yes. Very user friendly. They used a platform called eventive, which kind of, uh, came into its own during the pandemic. Uh, very good. It had a Roku app. They had an Apple TV app, uh, you know, an iPhone app and I, you know, which I did not use obviously because I, Watched it in a theater, uh, my own theater. You, wait, what do uh, you mean? Uh, oh, oh, you mean on your TV screen? Yeah, but you know, yes. Uh, and okay. uh, but they they had a lot of films that were um, in other in other venues, like uh, the Sundance Film Festival.
1: So a lot of documentaries that that uh, were there, uh, and they also well, had of course uh, we, or well, What was the what was the one breakout film, the best film that you saw to AFI Docs, the one we should keep an eye out for? Uh,
0: well, I. I'm going to name two, but but certainly Summer of Soul. I don't need to talk about. We talked well, no, about no, that. that.
1: That's not an AFI doc breakout. No, that's a that's getting no. a big box office commercial release. We all know about Questlove's movie from the the series of concerts in New York City. We're all looking forward to it.
0: Right now, uh, one that I will mention for you, uh, Michael, is a movie called Storm Lake. It's about a Pulitzer Prize-winning local paper, circulation thirty six hundred, and how basically those types of papers in the United States are going away. Oh that, yeah. you know the, the local, you know, and it goes into how agribusiness gets built up, and then they don't need the feed stores because there's no farmers anymore, and the feed stores basically helped support all of these these newspapers, and there's no advertise. It was, it's a what's interesting about it is it's a newspaper run by a family and they've run it for Mm -hmm. like 40 years.
1: Many newspapers were family run for generations. You know, Catherine Graham at the Washington post, the biggest newspapers were the times was run by the family for a long time, you know, Arthur Schultz. Yeah. Yeah. It's not unusual at all. Well, but the
0: one that I think, uh, you'll probably be hearing a lot about is it's a movie called the lost Leonardo. And if, if it's not, Leonardo DiCaprio, although, ironically, Leonardo DiCaprio makes (laughs) makes an appearance in this film, uh, unbeknownst to him, probably. But it's about the lost Leonardo da Vinci that was found in New Orleans in like 2005, and how it went from a painting that somebody purchased for $1,100 in an attic, all the way to a, a painting that was attributed to Leonardo da Vinci and sold for $450 million at a Christie auction. Whoopsie. Wow.
1: Yeah. And whether it's a real Leonardo da Vinci and who bought it right. and what that means. That's always that's always a that's always a bone of contention. So it was a well-made was it also well made or was it just a fascinating topic? It was a very well-made movie, and it was
0: by a Danish uh filmmaker by the name of Andreas Kof uh, you know what? I don't know Kof Kof, Kof Kofed, Don't even try Kofed? Don't even try. Yeah. Um, but uh very well known uh uh documentary filmmaker, and it's about the Salvatore Mundi, and it's a fascinating film, very well made,
1: uh, well worth seeing. Wow, that sounds like a big deal in the art world. (laughs) We've got no streaming numbers this week. I don't know why I couldn't find them in Variety again or The Hollywood Reporter. So we're going to have to find that out. We're trying to get someone from Nielsen to come on the show to talk about their new measurement called the gauge, which is a great way to compare the apples to oranges of broadcast versus streaming versus cable versus you know online and all this other stuff. So they've got a new metric for doing that, and we hope to get them on the show soon to talk about it. But right now it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop. That's yes. our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Sperling, what's our first story?
0: Well, and I was going to bring up a, an article in Bloomberg, but I'll, I'll bring that up in one of our later Big Deal, Big whoop stories. But our first story is about the Emmys because they are getting with the times. Under new rules, artists honored with a nomination or win, can choose to have their certificate or statue list them as performer rather than a gender-specific term, such as, say, best supporting actress or best actor, kind of like what I am, best actor, uh, and, and, you know, and other, other things like that. So, of course, most Emmy categories are already gender non-specific. They don't give an Emmy to the best female director, do they? I mean, not really. Uh, or they just give it right. to the best director. Also, by the way, me. You know, also my man. Uh, in more substantive news, the Emmys changed its documentary rules, again, to avoid overlap with the Oscars. If you make your film eligible for the Oscar by submitting it to the Academy, you are automatically ineligible for an Emmy. Choose a lane, people. Okay, that's basically what, what both the Oscars and the Emmys are saying. You can't double dip. Big deal or big whoop?
1: Well, the, 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 the gender nonspecific name choice that people can make is a big whoop. It's just something they can choose to do. It's polite, but it doesn't reflect the category change that needs to come. Uh, so we'll have to see how that happens. Uh, you might say, well, gee, maybe we should have Best Female Director. More women would win. Well, they would win if they were allowed and given the opportunities to direct. And you can look back and see how, in recent years, more and more women are winning because they're having more opportunities. The last woman to win Best Director for an Emmy for a drama was Marie Murano for The Handmaid's Tale in 2017. Then you got to go back in 1995 and Mimi Leader for ER, and then you gotta go back another decade for Karen Arthur when she did work on Cagney and Lacey basically, one a decade. That's not good, however, in sitcom, it's a better story. Amy Sherman Palladino won for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel in 2018, Jill Soloway won in 2016 for Transparent, Gail Mancuso won twice for Modern Family. Then back in the 90s, Betty Thomas from Hill Street Blues, one of the best shows of all time, she won for directing an episode of Dream On back in 1993. So you know what? The polite change on what your certificate or statute will say, that's nice. But it's more important to make substantive changes. That's what's happening at the Recording Academy. They have just invited a couple thousand new people to join naras That's the proper full name, right? The National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. They're trying to increase their diversity and that's the best way to make sure your awards and nominations reflect the world, make sure the body that you are, the voting people that you are reflect the world that's making the actual music. So that's a substantive thing and that's a big deal.
0: Yeah, I also think the the whole uh documentary category is a big deal because yes. you know, the documentaries were double dipping for for years they would like
1: win the Oscar and then go on to win an Emmy too. It's like all right, what which are is you? great. It was great, but yeah, you got to choose. You want to go up for an Emmy, you don't get to go up for an Oscar. Just choose one. You know, if you're going to be in release theatrically and then appear on on PBS, I understand it's a big t- tough decision. You know, I think I have a better shot at the Emmy. Well, those are the choices you have to make.
0: Yeah, and now somebody has made a choice. Director Quentin Tarantino appeared on Bill Maher's show to plug his new book, the novelization of his ninth film, Once Upon a Time. Dot. Dot. Dot in Hollywood. And Marr mocked the idea that Tarantino will retire after his 10th film. The give me a break. He said he's still serious about that for the simple reason that the last films of most directors' careers suck, so he wants to quit while he's ahead. Marr said you know, know, Clint Eastwood made Gran Torino when he was like 110 and that's one of my favorite movies of all time Marr said. Tarantino laughed but he isn't really budging. He says, nope, 10, 10 it is. Big deal
1: or big whoop. I think it's a big whoop because I don't believe him. Do you? What the hell else is he going to do? Go back to Blockbuster? They're they're out of business, Tarantino. They don't exist. Now, you know, there's a choice between simply knee-jerk making a movie after movie every year because you can, a la Woody Allen, and quitting outright. You can say, all right, I've had a great run here. Now I'm going to be more picky and choosy. I'm not just going to make a movie because, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's who I am. You know, you can do other things. You can write novels. He's got another book in the works. I think this novelization is very cool. Uh, I love that idea. And he has a book about movies that he's w- going to work on next. So that's a new creative outlet. He's, I think he's done theater before. Uh, obviously, if he goes in and starts making a ton of TV shows, we won't feel like he's really retired. We'll feel like he's just working in another another vein, like switching from oil to pastels or something. I don't know. but Or sculpture or something. But yeah, you know, he does have a good point most artists have a 10 to 15 year span where they do their important work and everything after that is just repetitive or actually junk, you know? So there's no doubt about that. But if you look at the classic directors he loves like John Ford or John Huston, if you stop them after not even 10 movies because John Ford made dozens and dozens of silent films before he even hit the sound era, but if you stop him after... You know, start with Stagecoach or the Informer and then stop 10 or 15 years later, you're still going to miss out on his Cavalry Trilogy, They Were Expendable, The Quiet Man, oh, and his masterpiece, The Searchers. John Huston, same things. If you start from the Maltese Falcon, you end 10 years later with the African Queen. That's a good way to go out, but you know what? You're going to miss out on The Man Who Would Be King, Pritzi's Honor, Under the Volcano, and his last film, one of the few guys to make a great last film, it's true, he's right about that, but Houston went out with The Dead, and that is, I think, a great film. So, you know, it can be done, Quentin, and you don't know what to do other than watch movies and make movies, so nice try, we'll believe it when we see it.
0: You know, I worked for Spike Lee back back when he was making a uh, movie, I think it was, uh, well, it was Mo' Better Blues, what turned into Mo' mm-hmm. Better Blues was a Love Supreme at the time, Uh, And Jungle Fever, and he he was publishing a book called Five for Five, which he was like so proud, like I made five movies in five years, just like Woody Allen. And as the movies started coming out, I was like, you know, maybe actually, it's better if you slowed down a bit and actually focused on one of these movies and making them masterpieces as opposed to just trying to get as many of these things done as possible and his line producer at the time said i think the scripts are getting better and better with each one well of course 93 94 95 96 what movies did he make in in that time period spike lee yeah you can't remember because they weren't very good and he did stop that whole you know make a movie
1: every year thing Well, it was a huge accomplishment for a black filmmaker to make projects that he was passionate about at the time. That is very true. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a different standard here, Um, you you know, uh, but 93, 94, 95. I mean, you you stopped right after Malcolm X. (laughs) He made Malcolm X in 92, one year after Jungle Fever. That's certainly one of his best films of all times. In 94, he made Crooklyn, which a lot and then Clockers, which a lot of people love. I'm not as big a fan of clockers, but there's a lot of people who think clockers is one of his best films, Eh, you know, and then he's got some rough stuff. Girl six, get on the bus. He got game summer of Sam bamboozled and then 25th hour and so on and so forth. But you know, I like 25th hour. Well, see, there you go. There you go. And he's still working pretty consistently. He's not taking too many years off. Uh, though. you You think maybe he should, but black Klansman was one of his better movies. And, uh, People like to defy bloods. so And he's got another one in the works, Prince of Cats. So he's got a couple dozen movies for a black filmmaker. No black filmmaker has made more films than Spike Lee. That alone is a huge credit to his career.
0: Well, he, you know, he's making a movie about the Prince of Cats. I'm the king of cats. That's all I can say. <laughs> and I can also tell you that Channel 4 may be on the auction block. This is the iconic what? UK public yeah, the iconic UK public broadcaster, they certainly fulfills they fulfill their mission of delivering high-quality popular entertainment all the time. It's backed by some of the best films to come out of Britain ever since the 1980s. It can boast of the worldwide smash-hit cooking show The Great British Bake Off, a, a show that I still think is a tongue twister. And they have a new miniseries with HBO called It's a Sin that's also conquered the world. So why is the UK government selling it off they're philistines they're philistines (laughs) well the people at the channel are raising alarms about what losing a not-for-profit channel would mean to the uk tv and uh, film and tv industry on the other hand the conservative government is also looking to regulate streamers like netflix demanding they offer up the same information and play by the same rules as i don't know the you know bbc and itv and yes
1: Channel 4. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, It's a big deal, both of it. Uh, On the one hand, they're doing something dumb by trying to turn Channel 4 and dumping it into just a commercial broadcaster. It's done a great job. It's hugely successful. It is not in financial hard times at the moment beyond the COVID impact that everybody has been dealing with. And the great thing about Channel 4 is that producers who work with them can retain the rights to movies and shows that they make for Channel 4, allowing independent production companies to flourish in the UK. That's been one of the strengths of their market. Now, When it comes to the streamers and the regulation, you know, Netflix can make a show with the BBC or another UK producers and they won't even tell them how many people are watching. So they don't know how to negotiate when it comes time to renew for season two or season three or uh, they don't know what to do. They're blind. They have no data and that's not cool. And the regulars, uh, but mostly what they're talking about is labeling content, which they already do, making sure that docs and news shows meet certain standards impartiality facts and things like that crazy things like that so uh, i think in general those regulations are a good thing but selling off channel four there's no compelling reason to do it and hopefully they'll come to their senses it's one of the great success stories of the uk uh, film and tv industry
0: well yeah i think uh you know i'm just going to touch on on the whole like not reporting uh viewer statistics and i get that there's certain uh, you know at the kind of dawn of this streaming age, there are certain competitive advantages to not letting your your competition know like what's working and what's not working. So putting that aside for a second, there's an article in Bloomberg uh, called Hollywood is Disguising the Results of Its TV Shows and Movies. And it goes into uh, quite a bit of the, you know, how how journalists, like in, in this case, Lucas Shaw, are trying to triangulate what shows are popular, what shows uh, are are doing well, what series are doing well. Ask your teenage daughter. She knows. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually, ironically, one of the ways. Uh, But, you know, another part of the reason they're they're not doing that is because, of course, it's not just letting your competitors know. It's letting your creative talent know, uh, hey, you need to uh, ask for more money because this (laughs) show is incredibly popular uh, and way more popular than even you thought. And more than uh, you know, more than we're letting... Your agents know, and
1: so you need to ask more They don't want to be getting into that. You told a great story about one agent who was going back to his clients and saying, look, yeah, I know you want to make more money, and you think, hey, we should get the same money as Stranger Things, but you know what? They're telling us that you're not nearly as popular as Stranger Things. And then he went, wait a second, why am I carrying an argument for Netflix when I have no idea how popular our show is? In this case, we were talking about 13 Reasons Why. And he said, why, a- and this why wasn't am an I... agent, it was, oh, was it. Oh, oh, it was the lawyer negotiating the contract. Okay. Well, the lawyer. Well, same thing. Person repre- well, person the representing the talent. Right. Again, somebody on the other side of the aisle. Right. Not Netflix person, but it was somebody who had their best interest at heart. Who was suddenly saying, "Wait, why am I making their argument for them? I should be, you know, demanding information so I know exactly how popular it is." So it's, and, a, it's and a I remember the lawyer saying,
0: I, "I need to know this just for yeah, my exactly. own studio. Forget about the talent. I need to know it for my own studio." And they he couldn't get it out of them.
1: Right. Well, yeah. So they don't make a deal with them unless you know you you know Paramount can hold steady. You want our show? Here's what you're going to do. You know, you, yeah you you well, want to show this show and you got to start demanding it or it'll never happen you want our content you got a show that you're excited by this is what we want otherwise it the, the dam is not going to break you know they say hey we don't care what our show is making if you know we don't play the game of ratings we play the game of subscriptions and it's been working for them hasn't it 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 most certainly has although i do know
0: of one other place where you can't figure out who's seeing what and when and whether a show is making money but it's not huh. A show that's on a screen. Oh, well, tell us about it. Well, yeah, I'm talking about our topic for Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is our segment where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, Bruce Springsteen's concert is the, it's, you know, Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. It is the first show to reopen on Broadway after the pandemic. It's an exciting step towards normal, and a thriving billion dollar business. Broadway powers the New York City economy and touring productions all over the country, and in fact, all over the world. So uh, there's one problem with uh, Springsteen being on Broadway, and it's not the fact that he's on Broadway or doing concerts. It's great. I wish I... Well, there's two problems. The first, I can't get a ticket. Okay? So that's the first problem. I tried, but I got my time zones mixed up, and by the time I figured out that it was the eastern time zone. I was trying to buy tickets in the Pacific time zone. I did not have any. There were no more tickets. But in any case, unfortunately, Springsteen opened to no grosses. Okay? So he opened on Broadway for the second time and nobody went to see it. None. What? Zip. Nada. What? Yeah, it made zero dollars and zero cents. Now, how can this be,
1: And let me explain. Well, of course, people paid to see Bruce Springsteen when his biographical show reopened on June 26. But the Broadway League won't be reporting grosses like they have been for decades now. In fact, they're going to refuse to report grosses as Broadway has done for decades until there's a full season. And no restrictions on audience size. So unless they change their self-imposed rules on what constitutes a full season, and that means 52 weeks, so where it's already impossible because we can't have a full season. And uh, if they don't have that, and they have don't all restrictions aren't completely yanked forever during that season, they won't be reporting grosses, and that means they'll have the loss of Broadway's best advertisement. What shows are popular, and that will be one more impact of COVID right? This is, this is a big trend withholding numbers. Broadway producers are not reporting grosses. Film studios are playing games and withholding movie grosses unless it suits their fancy. Streamers never want to report accurate info on who's watching their shows. They don't even want to tell the people who made the show. Now, is this a bad idea? Are all these areas of entertainment missing out on the great marketing of success? A show that builds and builds has a great story to tell. It generates articles and news stories and TV shows and and talk on the street and and people blog about it. A show that has legs, that's a great story to tell. A show that's a smash out of the box like F9 and Bruce Springsteen, presumably, that's a great story to tell. If you had the grosses for Bruce and we knew, okay, they only had 80% of the seats, but it sold out. Every seat was snapped up. That would tell everybody, look, Bruce is comfortable going back on Broadway, and so are fans. People are flocking back to the shows, and we're not getting reports a couple weeks later of everybody dying of COVID. So that would be a really great story to tell. All of these examples can generate stories and interest. A show that keeps its box office a secret gains nothing. And yes, sometimes your Broadway show, your movie, your TV show is a flop. Guess what? Everybody knows. (laughs) Everybody knows when something's a flop because no one's talking about it, and it goes off the air.
0: You so, know what when 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 your show on Broadway opens up on a Thursday and mm-hmm. it closes by the following Thursday we know your show was a flop okay you don't need to tell us how much money you're making we don't care and when your show your TV mm-hmm. show opens and you show you know the first two two uh episodes air and you're canceled by the third episode we know your show was a flop or let's say you're canceled by the first after the first
1: season we also know your show did not do well right so Good success is a good marketing tool. Is that Are they missing out on a big opportunity? I feel like I made a good example with Springsteen, how that could generate stories for days to come that would be really positive for that show in particular and Broadway in general.
0: Well, let's do this. Let's put Broadway in a box for a second. And and I'm only doing that because they're just now coming back and they have all of these limited but capacities. That, okay, you know what? Red, you want to win? That's
1: why, but they were like you at 80% capacity for Bruce, I think. It wasn't yeah, 50%. but you know what? they
0: don't wanna, they don't want to report it but, until they get back to fine but they can, okay they can tell fine. everybody
1: it's sold out every every seat available was taken, and everybody had a great time. They can They can do that just by going
0: I mean, people know that. People know that I tried to get tickets. I know that. <laughs> yeah but yeah, okay. so but what I would say. Is that there are films that you talk about, Michael, every week during box office that do not come from the United States. Okay. And I do get that, yeah, there's word of mouth. Bird box, perfect example of word of mouth marketing. Okay. We all knew that like people were watching it because they were going to work and they were talking about it at the water cooler. They were talking about it at Starbucks. They were talking about it at restaurants. We overheard conversations about. So yes, there's word of mouth marketing, but let's talk about what you do every week, Michael. You talk about films that opened in China or Europe. In Korea. Korea and you say you tell like, for instance, hit hard. Sounds interesting. I actually want to see that film. And guess what? You wouldn't have even mentioned that movie if if it hadn't if, been a a success of some sort. Well,
1: they reported Enough, the box office. They reported the box office. So we could report on it
0: right now. I'm going to I have actually made a note on paper that I will then move to my must see films and I have a list of must-see films. That list, that film is now on it. How would that have ever wound up on my list of films to watch if,
1: if you hadn't said anything? Be- Thank and, you, and- Showbiz Sandbox. So now, isn't some of this really just the hurt feelings of media? We're used to these numbers. We like to report in these numbers, and but in fact, audiences, the general public, really doesn't care as much as we do. Is that true?
0: Uh, when, when it comes to box office, I don't agree. I think they do care about box office. When it comes to ratings, mm-hmm. it seems that that people just, they don't care anymore because they know no, it's like nobody's getting a lot of viewers, so that it doesn't really matter. It's like, and nobody's well, getting no, a lot I, of
1: viewers at once. They do get a lot of viewers, but there's no way to report on it. People want to know what the number right. one show, if the Bird Box is the number one show on TV last week, they'd love to know that, because all their friends are talking about it, and that would reinforce the fact that Bird Box is number one, but there's no way to compare broadcast ratings and the black hole that is streamers right now. Netflix, Nielsen is trying, but it ain't easy. That's why they have the gauge to give us an overall sense of who's watching where, not specific shows, but who's watching broadcast versus cable versus streaming versus video games. That's what they're trying to do. But in terms of shows, I think people do care. Just like the box office top five is a great marketing tool. So is, you know, the TV top 10 that gets reported all over. And people, oh, that shows a top 10 hit. I want to check it out. It works. It's like word of mouth. But I do it's like think... word of mouth, owned by newspapers and, and right. news outlets. I do think, however, the grosses are far less important for Broadway. Fans do hear about smash hits like Hamilton and the Lion King and stuff like that. Weekly grosses haven't really pierced the popular consciousness of Broadway fans. They're aware tickets are hard to get, how expensive a ticket is, that's sort of their marker of success. Oh my god, Hamilton is $1,000 a ticket! That's what gets reported on instead of the weekly gross, but if that's starting to change. I do think that 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 knowledge that people gain with box office grosses for the movies is slowly taking over on Broadway. And I think it's for the good. I mean, people get savvy. They learn pretty quick. Oh, that had a that had a big drop in his second weekend. You know, when your mom's friends start saying that, you know, they're getting pretty smart about those numbers and they know what it means. So I think an informed audience is a good audience. And I do think the marketing of these numbers is a really net positive for all of these outlets and they're really missing out.
0: Well, I know uh, we're going to be missing out on uh, television shows about police officers. Bad boys, bad boys. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, because John, Lang- and, and and frankly, I think they took that show off the air because of everything that's been happening, at least in the U.S. Uh, and John Langley, the creator of the show Cops, where that song, uh, well, that song became was famous. actually, a, it became yeah. famous on that show, was a song before that. But he was the producer uh, and creator of that, of Cops. And uh, John Langley, he died at the age of 78.
1: That's right. He's known for a string of documentaries and reality TV. But he described himself as a child of the 60s who was anti-authoritarian by nature. And somehow he ended up creating the reality TV juggernaut Cops. He once said, if you told me I was going to do a show about cops, I would have said, what am I going to call it? Pigs? Wow. (laughs) This guy spent a lot of time with cops. That's kind of funny and amazing. Nobody wanted the show. If for no other reason, it seemed like a legal nightmare. You know, you're following cops, it's going to be dangerous, it's going to be scary, and who the hell is going to sign a waiver saying, yes, show me getting arrested on TV. Are you kidding me? Turns out, if you're going to go to jail, getting 50 minutes of fame by being on TV is a pretty good consolation prize. And now the format continues. It's produced all over the world, and it's so cheap, we thought it would run forever in the United States. That was until some stuff came out, a podcast revealed how cops regularly got the show to remove any footage that made them look bad. The show once destroyed, at least people involved with the show, once destroyed evidence that was needed in a, to, to look at what was going on in that, in that arrest. And in the wake of various police brutality videos, showing arrests entirely from the cops' point of view became less appealing. And of course, trying to do a show called Criminals, that doesn't work either for lots of complicated reasons. So it was canceled in the U.S. in 2020 after 31 years on one channel or another, and the format does live on in local versions all over the world.
0: Well, I wonder if British composer, and of course
1: he's the creator of a synthesizer, Peter, how do you pronounce his name? Zinoviev. Zinoviev. It's Russian. Zinoviev. He died at the age of 88. You're wondering if he ever composed the score for an episode of Cops? The answer is no. But if you've listened to the landmark albums by David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Kraftwerk, The Who, Tangerine Dream, The Beatles, and countless others, then you have listened to music made on synthesizers created by composer Peter Zanofiev and his groundbreaking company EMS. It's got a cool backstory. Peter was the son of Russian aristocrats who fled the revolution, so he was born in London in 1933. Then he was studying geology at Oxford when he decided, you know what? Experimental music would be a lot more fun. So with family jewelry smuggled out of Russia for a stake, he built a home studio and bought an early computer with a massive four kilobytes of memory. It cost the equivalent of $140,000. Four kilobytes. Can you imagine that, Sperling? No, I imagine not. Well, various instruments built by his company were used for stuff like the Doctor Who theme song, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, music by Jean-Michel Jarre and the great Brian Eno, among many others. Peter and Paul McCartney collaborated on a 14-minute avant-garde composition meant to be paired with the song Penny Lane. That hasn't been released yet. Paul. I know you listen to the show. Come on, Paul. Dig that out of the archives and put that out there in honor of Peter Zanofiev. His own compositions include the libretto for the opera The Mask of Orpheus, which was just revived by the English National Opera in 2019. And at some point, he moved away from music and did graphic design and taught. And in a very rock and roll way, was married four times. So cool, interesting career. Goodbye to Peter Zanofiev and Paul. You know, come on, get on, get on this step there, Paul. Make that happen.
0: Well, you know, uh, I I have
1: no good transition from You don't need one. You just say, Paul is calling us all the time on the phone, and we don't ever play his messages because it's just the same thing. When can I be on the show, lads? When can I be on the show? Paul, we'll get you in there someday. Don't worry about it. But we did get phone calls this week, didn't we, Sperling?
0: Yeah, here, let me play uh, this this first one, you know, because we've been we've been dying to get an okay, there's a good that would have been a good transition. We've been
1: dying to get phone calls. There goes. you go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, making light of death. Uh, Always a good transition from the obituary section. Oh brother. Okay, well let me play this first one. If someone with a foreign accent claims to be the IRS, Social Security Administration Office, Microsoft, Amazon, Cash App Of course lovely spam. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, so <laughs> well, we get that stuff, and by the way, you weren't getting notifications, so you had like 10 voicemails waiting for you. So little Spurnam was going, nobody calls me, but in fact, he wasn't checking his voicemails. Yeah, well, and but they were all uh
0: fax machines, which I didn't know still existed. Or they were oh, ap- apparently uh, if 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 somebody foreign from the IRS calls it, that's probably not the IRS. Uh and so <laughs> but we did get uh, at one from a, a higher power. Hello, Sperling and Michael. This is Reverend Andy, your in-house spiritual advisor. You said to call, so I thought I would call. Uh, I have a, a correction or an overarching comment, you might say. Your show needs less Hollywood and more Jacob deGrom. Uh, it needs to be met to talk um, pretty much the whole time. And I think then we'll get
1: over the 15,000 you know, per week uh, subscribers that you're looking to get to. So Jacob deGrom all the time please feel free to give me a call back. So that would be my friend, Reverend Andy. He is our in-house spiritual advisor. And as you may have sussed from that voicemail, a Mets fan. Yes. Whereas I am a Yankee fan, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but I'm all busy watching
0: Wimbledon right now. Yeah. And, and for those of you who aren't a uh, big baseball fans or may not even know what baseball is, since you might be out of the country, uh, Jacob deGrom is a pitcher for the New York Mets whose ERA is ridiculously low for this time of the year. I mean, yeah. it's like, if you are running, if you are batting against him, you may as well just let him throw as many pitches to you as possible because
1: he's, you're never going to score against him. And Jacob, if you're available, come on the show. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, you must have favorite baseball movies or music you listen to when you, you know, well, you don't back because you're a pitcher. Uh, but you do sometimes because you're in the, uh, in the National League. That's my American League bias there. So, Jacob, come on the show. We'll always, we can push Paul McCartney back to the following week anytime you're available. Yes, indeed. And you know
0: what, Uh, if you want to find out if Jacob deGrom takes us up on that offer, uh, actually, you probably don't need to listen to our show because I will be making sure it's in every national news outlet. <laughs> but but uh, if Jacob does have time to, to join us, uh, you know what? You're going to want to hear it. So please do subscribe to us in any one of the podcast aggregators out there, whether it's, it's iTunes, the Google Play Store, uh, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can Subscribe to us, and and those that allow it, please do rate and review the show. It does help us out when you do that. That information, those ways to subscribe to us, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find all of the stories we talked about today links to all the news stories they'll be on showbizsandbox.com as well that's also where you'll find those ways to contact us dirt at showbizsandbox.com that's a d-i-r-t at showbizsandbox.com or you can be like reverend andy and call us at 888-567-SAND that's 888-567-7263 we're also on twitter we're at showbizsandbox is our handle or on facebook facebook.com slash showbizsandbox again all that information on our website, com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. Michael Guild has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael?
1: This week, it's movienovelizations.com. I have become increasingly intrigued by this unbeloved genre of books. And I think it's really cool that Quentin is doing it. I'm going to go out and buy that book. And if it's not in mass market, I'm going to be really ticked. I bet they wanted him to put it in, you know, trade paperback so they can make more money. But movie novelizations should be in mass market. So, Quentin, if you didn't do that right, I'll be very disappointed. But it turns out, I've just checked, somebody already owns... (laughs) <laughs> that website Search the largest database of movie novelizations. There it is. And the recently added ones are Buffy and Virtuosity and Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, Time After Time, and The Shadow from 1994. Isn't that fascinating? There's a website for damn near everything.
0: And <laughs> in, in fact, there's a website for all of your coverage of the entertainment industry. You can find it at michaelgiltz.com. Now, some of my work you can find at celluloidjunkie.com until next week. Actually, no, next week there will not be a show. I should have mentioned that at the top of the, uh,
1: oh, the, the show. Ho, 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 ho. yeah. Why? Because it's July 4th weekend. It's July 4th weekend.
0: And oh, by the way, I'm going to Cannes.
1: Bleep me out. Bleep me out what I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> so just imagine a beep. <laughs> So, actually,
0: maybe we can try and do a show like in the middle of the week instead of like on a Monday. But I will actually be
1: traveling on Sunday and Monday. Or you could just do a show there with, you know, Stephen or some other people as your guests, you know, whatever's easiest to do because it's the time change. Do whatever works for you. But maybe we'll have one in the middle of the week from con. Why not? It'll help with your con coverage. That is very true.
0: Absolutely. We know how difficult that can be. But until, well, hopefully next week, if not next week, the week after that, Play nice.